Oh, come on now. You know you deserve it. A steak patty on any McDonald's breakfast sandwich. I mean any breakfast sandwich. Biscuit, McMuffin, bagel, McGriddles, a juicy steak patty on any breakfast sandwich. And when you order through the app, buy one and get one free. Now go get them. Valid for product of equal or lesser value. Limited time only at participating McDonald's. Valid one time per day. Excludes one, two, three dollar menu. So I saw firsthand what uh, incredible freedom and joy and adventures it brings to people to be liberated from uh, the tyranny of the place, meaning like to have to be somewhere. When you go to, okay, I need to be in this place too. Oh, I can be anywhere. It's incredible. And uh, not only for the individual, but I think uh, it's, it's a great it's a great way to experiment new form of living in society. Welcome to the Stranded Technologies podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Nicholas Anzinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafund.com to join the community. Today is August the 26th in 2023, and my guest is Olivier Roland. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you. Perfect. Olivier is an entrepreneur, investor, and independent author. He wrote The Way of the Intelligent Rebel, and blogs at Disruptive Horizons. The blog is awesome. I can't recommend it enough. The articles are very well written and very densely researched. There's only like 10 articles thus far, but each is a total page turner or whatever the digital equivalent of a page turner is. In his own words, Olivier writes about disruption of the nation states by the internet and globalization and how to transform from a mono-country to a netizen without borders. Olivier, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Nicholas. Olivier, how did you get to do what you do now? What's your journey been like? Well, um, I have been an entrepreneur for almost all my adult life because I, I dropped school at 18 to start my first company. It was a, an IT company. And uh, it was a great, great uh, journey. But like many entrepreneurs, I ended up after a few years, like working 70 hours a week and taking one week of, of vacation per year, you know. And at some point I was wondering if really it was what I wanted in life. So I wanted a little bit uh, more balance between my professional and my personal life. I stumbled upon a book uh, in 2008, The 4-Hour Work Week by Tim Ferriss that completely changed how I approach the, the job of being an entrepreneur. And I decided after reading the book uh, to have uh, an internet business that is that in service of my life instead of my life being in service of my business. So I, I pivoted to, to the internet. I, I did a few uh, blogs that were not successful, but my first successful blog was a blog about great books that can change your life. So it was basically a series of blogs. And long story short, I started to sell online courses and uh, nowadays, I help people to uh, create and grow the, their business online, especially using content marketing. So how do you create great piece of content that will attract 
workload of fans, prospects, and customers. I have an internet business since 2009, and I, I left my home country, which is France, uh, eight years ago. Uh, I lived three years in London, and now I have been in Dubai for five years. But for the last 12 years, I have been traveling the world more or less six months a year. So I saw firsthand what uh, incredible freedom and joy and adventures it brings to people to be liberated from uh, the tyranny of the place, meaning like to have to be somewhere. When you go to, okay, I need to be in this place to, oh, I can be anywhere. It's incredible. And uh, not only for the individual, but I think uh, it's, it's, a great, it's a great way to experiment new form of living in society. So it inspired me to start to write a book about this. Uh, I wrote a book in French, which is a bestseller. And you mentioned is the way of the intelligent trouble. It's a translation actually of my French book. And it's basically uh, criticisms of the education system. I, I, I try to demonstrate in the book why the classical uh, Western education system is not made for people like called the intelligent rebels, meaning, you know, entrepreneurs, uh, artists, people who think outside of the box. And in the, my new book, I'm criticizing nation states and, and why maybe it's not also made for people like us, you know, and what could be the alternatives. And so basically my blog, Disruptive Horizons, uh, are except from the book I'm writing right now. Fantastic. Really looking forward to that book coming up. And you already touched on so many interesting topics. And I love that sort of unbundling your life, escaping the tyranny of the place theme. It's something that I only started doing like about three years ago. So I'm, I'm curious, you said it was the four hour work week that triggered sort of that desire to go to different places. But what specifically, what else was there? Because I'm curious, are there other people that you've seen do it? Was that kind of a trend or... Was it something that you just stumbled into? I always wanted to travel. I'm a very curious person. So it's not the far work week per se that uh, gave me this, this want of, of traveling, but I couldn't be before because I was trapped in my own business. So the far work week gave me the pathway to be liberated through entrepreneurship instead of being enslaved by my own company, right? Tim Ferriss was a huge inspiration. And I mean, I, I had a lot of uh, mentors and uh, people who inspired me directly because I met them or indirectly through, you know, their content. So it's, it could be a bit hard for me to, to recap everyone, but like travel bloggers, uh, entrepreneurs who were teaching kind of the same thing. I'm part of an American mastermind of international entrepreneurs from Jeff Walker. You know, he created a, a way to, to sell online called the Product Launch Formula. Um, and I mean, I had many, many uh, uh, like source of inspirations. And um, a book I read at the end of 2021 also made my mind ex explode and uh, gave me the inspiration to start this new book and uh, this Substack. It's a book probably that is well known by, by uh, most of your audience. It's uh, The Sovereign Individual. Uh, and I mean, this book was published in 1997. So probably it was written in 1996. And I mean, <laughs> It's so incredible the amount of uh, predictions that uh, they did about the impact of internet on, on society and uh, the, the percentage that uh, was accurate, you know. And I, I read it at the end of 2021. And I mean, I was like, my God, this guy are describing exactly what I'm doing before I even knew I would do that. It's crazy, right? So uh, 
I decided to, to dig into this kind of topic and to start writing things on my own on this. Fantastic. What is your life stack look like right now, right? So you talked about residency, you talked about where it is your business incorporated and what are kind of the components of a life stack that someone who's a prospective, the like netizen without borders should think about or what kind of things are those like bank accounts and businesses? How would you go about that? I mean, the typical strategy of someone who wants to minimize its uh, interaction with uh, any state is like the six flags theory, right? Uh, you can be a digital nomad and not do that. It's not mandatory, but most digital nomads they do this kind of strategy, even when they don't know it, you know, just because it's natural. Uh, so basically the theory is a following. And by the way, I never met anyone who follow everything by the book. So it's more like, you know, a Northern start that, that guide you that just like things you need to follow absolutely. But the idea is if you want to, to maximize your freedom and minimize uh, any constraint a state can have about you, you want to separate different aspects of your life in different countries, what they call flags. So the first flag is your flag of citizenship. And two important things about this flag is first, you should have a citizenship of a country that will not tax you everywhere you go, meaning you should, you should not be American. Or if you are unfortunately American, maybe, you know, get another citizenship and renounce. I know it's not easy. I mean, citizenship is not only a piece of paper, right? So, so our words, it can be deeply emotional. So it's not for everyone to renounce uh, the citizenship. But if you're American, fortunately, uh, the rest of the strategy is going to be very hard for you because the IRS is following you everywhere you go. Everywhere you go, you're in jail, basically. And the second thing is, if you're not American and you implement this strategy, basically, in theory, you should have nothing in your country of origin. I mean, yeah. well, it, I, I'm just speaking about the ideal theory, right? It's not mandatory to have nothing, but ideally you should have nothing in your country of origin because basically it's the country that the most take you for granted. When you are uh, an entrepreneur with the uh, online business, and even like a, a remote worker, basically you have dozens right now of jurisdictions fighting to get you to come to, to, to them and, you know, bring money, jobs, a bit of taxes, these kind of things. And the only country that doesn't fight to, to attract you is your country of origin because it's a cure for what it is. It's a part of human psychology. We value more what we don't have than what we have already. And it works for countries too. So your country of origin will be the one that will be the most motivated to keep you in their tax net. And I mean, depends from country to country, there are different rules, but basically the less you have in your country of origin, the less time you spend, the better. Okay. There are many exceptions to this, but you want to follow this. So this is the first flag. Second flag is uh, your country of residence. So you should choose a, a country of residence that will give you a lot of flexibility, will not try to uh, conscript you, will not try to uh, burden you with too, too much tax and these kind of things, right? The third country is your country of business. So back in the day, so this theory was created in the 60s as a three flag theory, then it was expanded to five in the 80s, then to six in the 20s, uh, in the 2000, right? Initially, the, the idea was to have your company in another country 
as your country of residence. It's harder and harder to pull it off nowadays because of the CRS rules. Basically, if you, uh, I don't know, if you live in Portugal, for example, I'm in Lisbon right now, and you have a company in Dubai, great, it's completely legal. But if you manage the, the, the Dubai company from Portugal, it's going to be, uh, the company is going to pay taxes in Portugal because it will be deemed uh, a tax resident company by uh, Portuguese tax authorities, right? So it's harder and harder to pull that off. Uh, but what you can do nowadays is to have your company in the country where you don't have customers. And these are also give you a great layer of protection. Then you have the countries where you spend your time. Ideally, everything should be separated, right? Like if you really want to follow like hardcore, you shouldn't even spend too much time in your country of residence, right? Uh, but yeah, and, and then you spend the rest of the year, you know, traveling around and in the places you like as a tourist, because when, when you are a tourist, it's like when you minimize the most uh, any information any state has about you, you just know when you enter, when you leave, basically, right? You're not registered anywhere else. And then the fifth flag is where you put your business investment, or oh, not even your business, just your investment, you know? And the sixth flag is where you put your digital asset. So where you, your websites are hosted, where uh, is your uh, email uh, provider, uh, et cetera, et cetera, right? So if you want to follow by the book, everything is separated. Again, I never met anyone who follow really by the book, but the more, the more separated it is, the better. And you don't need to have six flags, right? Two flags are better than one, three flags are better than two, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, when you do that, it's very interesting because we can see it's an asymmetric defense against states. Meaning, when you're a digital nomad, it's very easy to, to put this strategy in place. Maybe not completely, but at least partially. It's, it's really easy. It's part of our life. Uh, before I, I stumbled upon this theory, I was already uh, doing that, you know. And it's very, very hard for nation states to, to fight against this. I'm not saying it makes you invincible because nobody is invincible. Uh, if you are the new Pablo Escobar and you, you create an international drug trafficking, don't worry, the FBI is going to come after you. That is for sure. But it creates a complexity. You know, I always put a chart. If one day a tax collector wakes up and is angry for some reason and he stumbles upon one of your YouTube videos and he doesn't like you, and he's like, okay, I will uh, audit this guy because I doesn't like this guy. He smells uh, like a fishy guy, you know? And uh, his motivation is like this. And your complexity is like this, you know? So motivation, complexity. But if you have, uh, if you use a six-pack theory, your, your, your complexity is here. He will not have the motivation to go after you because it's very, very complicated. It's not impossible. If you are Pablo Escobar, their motivation will be there, right? So if you are a honest entrepreneur, it will protect you for 99% of uh, any uh, uh, trouble you could get from a government agency and these kind of things, right? Yeah, you had this article on, on a topic, how the internet makes governance impotent to tackle bottlenecks, where you made this really interesting observation that governments are really set up to go after like big bottlenecks, right? So big organizations. But, you know, for like the marginal person, who has like a complex array of like entities and identities that's just not possible for them. They're not made or they're not able to, to control that effectively. Well, they can go after anybody, but they, they cannot go after everybody mm -hmm. who does mm -hmm. that. 
No, I make the parallel uh, with the Middle Ages uh, because basically what we see here is an inversion of the of the strength between attack and defense. And you know, and it's one of the major theses of the sovereign individual that it's very disruptive when there is an invention like this. And example, uh, during the Middle Ages, before the invention of gunpowder, basically it was easier, everything else being equal, to build a castle than to take it. And when gunpowder arrived, suddenly it was easier to take a castle than, than to build it, and it, it was the end of feudalism, basically. But uh, even during the Middle Ages, the king, which was most of the time, not all the time, the most powerful of all the lords, he could take any castle uh, in his kingdom. And he could take maybe one, two, or three, but he couldn't take 10, 20, or such castles. It would have been too costly, too long, so he had to negotiate with the lords. So the idea is, if you... I mean, as digital nomads, we are, I don't know, millions today, nowadays. Most of them use this kind of strategy. They don't know it, you know, but a little bit, you know. And so it's impossible for any state to, to, to go after them. But if you make yourself a big target because you, you raise their motivation, they can go after you, right? Nobody is untouchable, uh, that is for sure. But when we are numerous to these kind of things, we have a protection by putting place this kind of strategy and, and being uh, many. I wonder how entrepreneurs that are in some of these frontier industries like biotech or hardware that want to build big companies should think about that, right? Because they don't have the same level of protection of being small if they build big businesses. It's going to be in a, in a future article I'm going to publish, but for example, Telegram. Telegram has like half a billion monthly users. It's like a huge company, right? And uh, when you look at the founder, so he's Russian, uh, Pavlov. And no, no, he's not only Russian, but he's also uh, French, uh, Emirati, and he has a, one of the citizenship of the Caribbean. So I don't remember which one, maybe St. Kitts or something, you know. And, uh, but he, he created basically the equivalent of, uh, I think it was Google or Facebook uh, in Russia. He, get, he got very rich, but then he left Russia because he, was, he felt he was being oppressed. And uh, he created Telegram. And basically for years, Telegram had no headquarters. And uh, Pavlov was saying, hey, the headquarters is basically where I am, where, where I put my ass, <laughs> which is already very disruptive, right? It's a very big, uh, maybe not a big company by the number of employees, but by the number of users, it's really huge. And nowadays, he lives in Dubai. He's been a few years, you know. But if you read uh, the FAQ of Telegram, uh, you can read that basically uh, they say, we don't have a physical address. If you want to write us a letter, there is this address in London, but there is nobody. Uh, come catch us, basically. Uh, so <laughs> see, you see here an example of a big social media that tries to minimize any interaction you can have with, with, with the state. Yeah, and you could also just go very multi-jurisdictional, right? So there's plenty of multinational corporations that are very big but they have assets in different entities in many different countries. In this way, they also have leverage, right? So, you know, at that stage, Absolutely. they can also afford good lawyers and set up kind of a level of complexity that makes them harder to or less vulnerable to what states want from them. So can you encapsulate the thesis of disruptive horizons, right? You said you're already also writing a book about it. What if, if you have just uh, like one or two minutes, what do you say, what do you say is it about? Well, it's about uh, the fact that everything we take for granted in society, like all the nation states are organized, 
uh, or, or societies organized. We take it from Gautier, but actually it's very recent in history. And when you look at the factors that made it what it is today, you realize it was mostly due to technological advances, especially the, the printing press. And when you look at all these factors and how they, they came to, to create what we know today, you realize they are being disrupted big time, big, big time by, by the internet. So the disruptive horizons is all about what disruptions exactly the internet brings and how nation sets are going to react and how as an individual you can thrive, thrive in this new world. So to give you one example, uh, all societies like democracies and, you know, all the modern form of, uh, of uh, nation states, they were created, inventing design with something that was not thought because it was impossible to not do otherwise for most people at, at the time. It was like thought with the idea, not even the idea, it was common knowledge that most of the population was not mobile, was tied to one place. The Enlightenment philosophers were like mostly, uh, you know, uh, doing their work in the 17th and 18th century. And at the time, 90% of the population in, uh, in countries were uh, farmers. They were tied to their land. And most people didn't travel much more than 20 or 30 kilometers around their, 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 their hometown, their, their town of birth, right? It was just take it for granted and incorporate in the system. But nowadays, the population has never been so mobile. Even back in the days, the wealthy people, they were also most of them tied to their land because most of their wealth were coming from, from the land, right? So they couldn't travel so much, right? So nowadays, with the plane, with, uh, I mean, modern transport and communication, it's so easy to move and to leave your country. And internet allows you to leave your country, your own country, but keep your business and still have your customers in your own country. And it's very, very disruptive. It's just one of the many, many uh, disruptions because the system was not designed with people like us in mind. What we are doing is very disruptive. Be before very like recently in history, if you wanted to do business in a country, it was almost impossible uh, to, to do it without have a, having a physical presence in the country, right? And this is very, very disruptive. It's, it's actually disruptive to a very core foundation of the system. Yeah, uh, I had an episode, which is my last episode with Tibor Sele, um, which doesn't change anything about the disruption that we're seeing today. But he was saying it's not entirely true that people are were so much less mobile in the older times, right? So it was in fact that people were. There's a crucial difference between mileage traveled, right? There were no airplanes, obviously, but there was actually at times a higher share of travel time throughout your year compared to your entire time, right? And because it was for things like religious pilgrimages and also commercial activities, right? So day laborer were moving around more quickly. And there were fewer like borders and so your life wasn't like that bundled to a place like it is today, right? So I think it was also many things that nation states did, right? So for example, like stronger border controls and enforcement, passports, and also like social security and things like that, or like the public schooling system that did actively bundle your life where more you were before you were actually in some ways more flexible, right? So. Well, uh, I agree and disagree with this. Uh, I think it's true. I mean, uh, p the passport is a very recent invention. It's also an example of something we take for granted. 
actually was invented very recently in history. But I will argue that passports were not necessary before because people were less mobile. So you didn't have a risk of being like invaded, quote, quote, uh, by uh, millions of migrants from a poor country, right? Because mostly it didn't happen. Uh, it's true uh, uh, that we have the cliche that, uh, you know, people uh, didn't travel a lot, but it's true they were religious pilgrimage and stuff. But I mean, it was a very tiny minority of the population that was doing that. Again, 19% plus of the population were, were farmers and they couldn't travel so much. They, were, they had a, a land to farm. Right. So, uh, yes, during winter, there they were less work for them, but winter was also a, a season that was very hard to travel uh, during, you know. I mean, we could have a debate about that, but I think really travels are way, way easier today and uh, a, a, a way a bigger pop, uh, portion of the population is now more mobile than before. But of course, there were, were always travelers and, and stuff. People, I mean, Marco Polo went to the other side of the world in the 13th century or ish, right? Uh, but yeah, I mean, what is the percentage of Venetians that went to, 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 to China at the time, right? So, Yeah, you'd, have a, you'd really enjoy the debate with Thibault because you're both history buffs. So I'm not taking a position. <laughs> I leave that to the historians like you two. But it definitely leads to the same outcome, right? So that, that our lives have become more and more bundled through the nation states. And we see now a more of an unbundling through the internet and through change in communication technologies. Which brings us to your fantastic two-part series article about your 10 thesis about history. So I first would like to read out all 10 of them. And I'm specifically interested in three of them that were my favorites, but you can also pick different ones if you feel that encapsulates better what the book will be about or the, the claims that you want to make. Right, so reading the thesis, the first principle, the power of governments is based on the immobility of their subjects. Second principle, a cheap, uncensored communications technology is highly disruptive to the powers that be. Third, when a cheap, hard-to-censor communications technology develops, the authorities in power try to control it and institute mechanisms to tell good believers what is true and what is not. Fourth, states that win temporarily by succeeding in banning or stifling a technology lose in the long term because they do not benefit from the fruits of that technology to the extent that centuries later the consequences of the accumulated backwardness are still visible. Fifth, a reversal of the balance of power between attack and defense technologies is highly disruptive to the powers that be. Six, people's obedience and motivation to follow someone's instructions come directly from the beliefs that they hold in their heads. Seventh, cheap, hard-to-censor communications technologies are very powerful in changing the stories people believe. Eight, when conflicting stories fight to exist in people's minds, it sometimes takes wars to decide which story will win out. Ninth, when an established power is disrupted, it does not surrender without a fight. Tenth, new factors, especially technological ones, can disrupt existing institutions, even those that seem immortal or irreplaceable, and replace them with new ones. 
The one that I'd like to start with is principle 10. Can you talk a bit more about that one, about the disruption of existing large institutions that were seen as immortal or replaceable? The example I give to illustrate this principle is uh, the nation state. And basically, what is patriotism? Because we take patriotism for granted, <clears throat> and most people, I mean, they never really thought about it, but uh, if you would ask them, hey, do you think uh, patriotism existed uh, 2,000 years ago? They will say, yeah, of course, it's part of being a human being, right? Well, actually, no. What is part of being a human is we want to belong to a community, and we want to contribute to the, this community and to protect it. That is true. But patriotism is a very recent invention that takes this part of human nature and extends it to a country. And during most of history, the community that people felt part of and wanted to contribute to was the tribe, basically, the village, maybe the city, maybe the city, but not more than that. So I give the example of, uh, of François, you know, so French guy, I mean, French, there. We are born in the territory of France of nowadays, right? So one is Francois of uh, 1400s, and the other one is Francois of 2000. And they were born both in Brittany, and for, for the sake of the thought experiment, they, are, they both have the, the same DNA, right? Let's say that the city of Carcassonne, which is in the south of France, is attacking. Well, the Francois of 1400s, he will not feel any sacred duty to give his life to defend Carcassonne. Carcassonne, uh, the, the, he never met anyone from, from there, uh, even though at the time it was still also part of uh, the Kingdom of France, right? But in Carcassonne, they don't speak the same language as him. The Francois of 1400s, he speaks uh, Breton, which is the language of Brittany, which is a regional language. If he's educated, maybe a few words of Latin, maybe a few words of Parisian, you know, uh, but really not more than that. And uh, it doesn't feel any uh, connection culturally, linguistically, economically to Carcassonne. So if he's going to sacrifice his life to, to uh, try to, to defend the city, it's because his lord asked him to join an army to, to come defend Carcassonne. And why his lord asked him? Because the lord of his lord asked him. And, and the, why the lord of his lord asked him? Because the, the lord of the lord of the lord, which is the king of France, asked him, you know, so it was all like a hierarchy of, of uh, you know, vows and duty. So he's going to sacrifice his life, not because he feels security, but because he feels he has to honor the vow he made to his lord. Or if Carcassonne was uh, attacked by an army of a different faith, uh, as uh, his one, which was a Catholic faith at the time, uh, he could feel a sacred duty to do a religious war against the invaders. Yeah. But there was no sense of patriotism. Yes, Francois was a subject of the king of France, but he didn't feel French. There was no uh, idea of being French at the time. He was, it was from Brittany. He was a Breton, you know? And uh, yes, he knew there was the king of France was like at the top of the pyramid, but it was a very nebulous concept for him. It's a bit like if you're European, like the Council of Europe, or if you are American, you know there is a Council of the, of the UN that can have take some decision, but for you, your, your chief, your boss is the president, right? So for him, his chief was the Lord of Brittany, the Duke of Brittany, to be more precise. He felt Breton and not French. So fast forward to 2000s, it's completely different. If Carcassonne is attacked, yes, 
the François of, of Britannia of 2000 will feel a sacred duty to, to different Carcassonne because Carcassonne is French and is French. So what happened in between, you know, the François of 2000, he feels more like a French from Brittany than a Breton that is also French. You see the difference? So what happened in between? That's what is very interesting is, uh, it's a long story, right? But, uh, so the end of feudalism allowed that, that was mo mostly brought by the gunpowder, right? Uh, allowed like the kings to centralize more and more their power because the lords were more and more powerless to fight against his power. So when they started to centralize the power, they also started to uniformize customs of the, of the country, of the kingdom. It was not a country back then, a kingdom. They also tried to uniformize uh, the, the languages. Because if you look at France, for example, in, in the 15th century, uh, it was like a patchwork of regional languages, regional customs, and many people from different regions couldn't talk to each other, didn't have... Uh, it was dialect, you know? It was like a Portuguese talking to a Spanish nowadays, right? Yes, there is some, uh, a little bit of mutual intelligibility. If they speak slowly, they can understand some basic stuff, but it's still not, it wasn't the same language, right? The kings were also helped by the printing press. The printing press were, was a technological advance that really, really helped to impose one language on a given territory, because basically at the start, the, the printers, they were printing in Latin, and Latin, what is, was good with Latin, it was uh, a thin but wide audience. Educate, you, you, were, you had educated people all over Europe speaking Latin. It's a bit like English too, nowadays. Uh, there were less people speaking Latin back then than English now, but still. And when they exhausted the market, I mean, they, were, they, they needed to make money. They were entrepreneurs. So they looked to expand their market and they started to print in the most popular color language uh, of, of the time, which was, I mean, usually the printing press, the first ones, they, they went to the wealthier cities, which often were also the capital of a, of a kingdom. And they basically started to print in the language, the local language of this city. And it started to spread more uh, this language compared to others, right? So you can see there were like a few technological advances, like uh, technologies that helped doing this uniformization, so gunpowder, uh, printing press, and also, uh, you know, this new form of governments and stuff. So fast forward to today, uh, internet is a printing press on steroids. And I think it's going to change how you feel you are part of a community. Because basically what, what made the nation state is like, suddenly it expanded the consciousness of your local community to something way bigger than the local community of people you know, right? I mean, the Francois of 1400s, he never saw a map of the Kingdom of France in his life. So also for him, the, the Kingdom of France is a very nebulous concept. So with printing press, also, it's, it's like, it seems anecdotal, it's important. We see maps all the time and we can relate to the map and say, oh, this is my country. But before that, most people never saw a map in their life, right? So uh, a nation is an imagining community because... You will meet, if you are French, you will meet a French for, from uh, 1,000 kilometers, living 1,000 kilometers from you. And you will recognize this French because of different signs, like right? the language, the different cultural things you share, etc., etc. But you will imagine it's part of the same community as you, but you never met this guy, right? So internet, I think, is going to extend this uh, notion of imagining communities to communities uh, that will not be tied to a particular uh, place. 
there is uh, the the book that Balaji Srivastava. Uh, I'm not sure I pronounced his last name right. Srivastava. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the, the the network state that that speaks at length about it. But the idea is like nowadays you have some people they feel more connected to an online community of like-minded people than to their neighbor. And I think all community of of digital nomads, I feel I'm a digital nomad, you know, uh, is a really interesting example of this kind of community that feels uh, like a community of really like people with a lot of things in common, right? Because we are a minority. We are a minority that seems very strange for many uh, people, but we understand each other and we understand how amazing it is to be. It's easy to connect, you know, and probably uh, most digital nomads will feel closer to a digital nomad living in Japan or New York or Brazil than to their neighbor who is a plumber. Depends of, of obviously, uh, everyone, depends of how you feel closer. But I mean, you, you will feel the plumber will not understand you, right, on so many things. But the guy from Japan, uh, the guy from the US, the guy from Brazil, yeah, we understand each other because we, we, are, we share a lot of common characteristics. So you see here an example of a, of a community that transcends borders and that makes you also feel connected to something that is more than your country uh, and that also uh, kind of makes your country obsolete in a way. You know, like, wh wh what is this concept of borders? It doesn't mean anything today. I mean, maybe not anything, but it means less than before, right? And also the, the, the spread of English. Uh, I mean, basically, uh, the printing press helped erase regional languages because more and more, it was uh, a burden to speak only regional language instead of the national language because so many books and, you know, communication and newspaper were printed in the national language that if you only uh, spoke like a regional language, you were cut off from so much like intellectual, cultural life, economic life. And nowadays, the same with English. If you don't speak English, man, Basically, uh, I think it's 55% of websites are in English. So if you don't speak English, you already half of internet is cut from, from you. You cannot benefit from half of the internet, right? And uh, this worldwide community of digital nomads, it's really helpful to speak English, right? I mean, English is not my first language. I don't think it is for you too, right? Uh, no, not my first, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, and I mean, I cannot expect someone I meet randomly somewhere in the world to have learned French, but I can expect someone that I meet randomly to have to have learned English, right? And uh, we we both speak together, speaking a second language, and it also helped create this sense of community that transcends borders. Uh, I could continue a long time uh, like this, you know, but you see, like uh, everything we take for granted. Also, nationalism is very good at pretending that it always existed and the. You know, at, at also uh, putting history in his mold. So it tries to, to make you think that, for example, French existed for 1,500 years, but the, the modern nation set of France is very recent. It's like 200, 300 years old top, you know? And uh, when, you, when you learn how it came to be, you can also start to understand how it could be disrupted. Because it, is, it was not magical, it's not universal. It, it, it hasn't existed for, for most of the history and it could be, it could change. Yeah, there's so many things you said that I'd like to double click on that uh, we unfortunately won't have time for. 
but you already answered questions around sort of how mobility uh, is important and the immobility is important of people is important for states. We talked a lot about that. What I also really like is the idea that it's much easier for you to find a community you feel aligned to or belong to, right? So Tyler Cowen once said, the internet made people weirder just because people have ton of weird micro tastes and habits and are just very different and very diverse and through the internet it's much easier to find people that are similar right so when i think of the beginning of social media i was one of the few nerdy kids that was interested in like nietzsche and philosophy and literature and through that social media i was able to find all the other teenagers in like the other remote villages, right? So <laughs> that were also kind of felt very alienated in these places, but this way we were able to find each other. And I think places like Zuzalu in Montenegro, Vitalik, which are in the top up city, were also just a great manifestation of like a very specific, highly aligned online community, like from the Ethereum ecosystem, frontier technologists. So I think there's this, uh, exactly the kinds of trends that, or the wave that I'm riding on with what I'm doing. And I think that's very exciting in many, many ways. One thing that I it wanted is, yeah. to also know more about or what principle, did you want to respond to something? No, no, continue. Okay. Yeah, um, the third principle, because I think that's topical today, when it's cheap, hard to censor communications technology develops, the authorities and power try to control it and institute mechanisms to tell good believers what is true and what is not, right? That seems reminiscent to what many people believe is going on today. So what are the historical yeah. examples and how do you see it playing out today? So uh, the example I give in the article is like uh, the printing press not only allowed uh, like kings to, to like have a, a common language in their whole kingdom, but uh, first, before that, it actually completely disrupted the Catholic Church because before Protestantism, there were like dozens of uh, movements that tried to do the same thing, right? To protest against the Catholic Church because they didn't follow exactly the Bible and these kind of things. And uh, before Protestantism, they were all crushed with no hope of winning at all, all right? Like the empire was winning against rebels all the time. No exception. One of the most famous of these uh, proto-Protestant movement is the Qatars, right? Uh, and uh, suddenly, Protestants start to protest and they don't lose. They start to win. What happened in between? The printing press. So when Martin Luther wrote his uh, 95 Thesis, uh, the printing press was already in meetings has been like 60 years more or less. And the, they started printing these things and they, they spread throughout Europe in a few months. Millions of uh, pamphlets were published in the decades after. And the Catholic just tried to do it, tried to use it as a typical formula. They declared that Martin Luther was a heretic. They tried, they tried to burn him and stuff, but it was too late because his ideas already spread to a territory that was so huge, it was impossible for the Catholic Church to do to use this as their typical formula. Then there were religious wars in Europe that were actually catastrophic in the Holy Roman Empire that was roughly the territory of Germany. Nowadays, like between one third to two thirds of the population was killed or displaced. It was really bad. Way worse than the two world wars, actually. You know? But uh, when the church, the Catholic Church, so that they were starting to, to, to lose like a, a huge portion of Europe. Uh, they, they started 
to, so they try to, to control the printing press. And it's a pattern you can see repeatedly in history that uh, when the powers that be are disrupted by technology, they try to control it. I, I could create another principle based on that. I how how did they try to control it, by the way? Did they try to get uh, a hold of the physical machinery or did they like regulate it or what did they do? Yes. Basically, they regulated it. They, they put some rules saying, hey, uh, if you want to operate a printing press, you need to get an approval from, from the church. We need to, to read your books in advance so you get the seal of approval and kind of things. And they created the index of forbidden books. So they said, all right, we, we know most of you are good believers. So we're going to, I know, we know that there are many uh, bad books uh, roaming, you know, so we are helping you. We will help you to, to know what you can read and what you can't. So first, if, if there, you see a book without a seal of approval, well, oh, be careful, no, don't read it, burn it, uh, they know the author, the authorization, these kind of things. And oh, and this is a list of all the books you shouldn't read. And not only you shouldn't, you can't read, it's forbidden, right? And they put like thousands of books and many of them were, were Protestant. I mean, to this day, this list still exists, right? Here you can see that they try to control the technological force, but... Most of the time, it's uh, it's a losing battle, right? It's a uphill battle, and it, it works to slow down the progress a bit, but they cannot really stop the disruption. We, we saw it like recently. I mean, with the internet, uh, the, of the progress that bit tries to do the same thing. Exactly, like we saw it. Uh, it was one or two years ago when uh, the U.S. in the U.S. it tried to do like a, what people call the Minister of Truth. Uh, saying, hey, we will tell you what is fake news and what is not. Don't worry. If you're yeah, a good believer, just follow the instructions and you will know what to believe, right? It is exactly the same process. Exactly. Uh, and most people didn't see that, which actually is very interesting. Uh, but but history shows that it's, it's ineffective in the long term. Yeah. Fantastic. I, I'd like to move on from the history unless you feel we're missing something because I still definitely want to talk about AML KYC. Yeah, no, go for it. Okay, sure. So let's talk about AML KYC. So any monthly laundering and know your customer. Your thesis is they're destroying the world. That's a strong thesis. So can you elaborate? And also to get started, what is AML KYC? Yeah, so KYC is know your customer. AML is uh, anti-money laundering. So it's basically regulations that were created uh, at the end of the 80s with a goal. And I think it was a very good goal. And I think uh, it was a good idea at the time. Uh, they were like, hey, the, the war on drugs is, uh, is failing. Uh, it's still failing, by the way. There are so many criminals. Uh, it's hard for the police to do their job. What if we prevent the criminals to use the money they gain illegally. Because if we succeed at doing that, well, they will lose all motivations because criminals are, are criminals because they want to make money, right? Which I think is was very smart, actually. Why not? You know, you can, it's a good hypothesis. You can try. You do a scientific experiment to see if your hypothesis works or not. So they, they uh, said to banks, basically, hey, uh, now, good news, you have to, to really know your customer. You cannot service your customer who is not understanding uh, his business, his profile, and, and, and this, you know. And, and you need to be careful about uh, suspicious transactions, okay? If you see someone deposit $1 million in cash, why? 
where, where, the, where does it come from? Ask questions, and if you see something suspicious, report it to the authorities. So the idea was to get drug traffickers and, and this kind of criminals. The regulations started to be tougher and tougher, especially after 2001, right? And nowadays, we, we have like 40 years of, no, 30 years of history, and we can look at uh, the efficiency of this. And my God, it is one of the less efficient uh, regulations ever invented. It's ridiculous. Problem is, and I mean, there are plenty of scientific studies of these, right? But uh, just to give you a number, so it, it is estimated that the global compliance cost, because it's very costly for banks, actually, not only banks, but any financial institution to implement this kind of uh, regulations, is 304 billion USD per year, okay? And the authorities managed to seize, <laughs> wait for it, 3 billion a year of criminal fund worldwide. So already the direct cost is 100 times higher than the, the criminal funds that uh, the authorities managed to seize. And this is a direct cost. The indirect costs are enormous because, I mean, I'm sure it happened to you. Uh, you do like a wire payment to a friend or a company, and then uh, your bank send you an email saying, hey, good news, you have to fill this shifting page form to explain to us why you're sending this money. Well, maybe it's not 15 pages, right? But they ask you many questions like, okay, uh, where, why you do this? Why your payment? To who is it? Why, why you don't do it uh, with a credit card or, or whatever, you know? And I mean, I don't know for you, but first time it happened, I was like, guys, it's my, is it my money or what? Can I, can I use my money or, or how I want or not? And so it creates a lot of friction. First, in all the time you, you're losing because of this uh, bureaucracy. But also because more and more, the, the problem is uh, if the banks don't implement this kind of regulation well, they get fined. And I mean, it's not like a small fine. They get fined billions of dollars. So if they see uh, someone who is a bit too, too much suspicious, you know, most often than not, they will close his account because they don't care. They are like, maybe we'll get a few, uh, a few thousand dollars in a few years with this guy or... If it's bad, we, we, we're going to get a fine of millions of dollars. So let's not do business with it. And uh, there was an article in the New York Times a, a few months ago exactly about that, that more and more bank accounts were closed uh, without uh, any reason given and for uh, what seemed uh, arbitrary reason. And there was a story of uh, guys trying to send money to their family in Pakistan. And my God... Pakistan, but it's like a super bad country with a lot of terrorists. Why do you want to send money there? Okay, let's close your account. You know, so, so many stories like this. So many stories of people uh, getting kicked out uh, or sometimes just they don't, they cannot open an account because of, of something that is a bit suspicious in their profile, right? So the cost to society indirectly is also enormous and uh, it's basically completely inefficient. It is estimated that the authorities can recover between 0.05% of criminal fund to, in the base case, 1.1%. And I mean, it's scientific studies of people really that dig into it. And it's like, it's ridiculous when you look at the cost compared to what it brings. Yeah, it's and all the secondary effects actually. of it are just, yeah, I mean... 
um, just the inconvenience it imposes for people, the door it opens for discrimination, like whether you're in the wrong country or not. Also, it just makes it harder by increasing compliance costs that increases the fixed costs to start a new bank, right? So that means banking has become much more centralized, right? So it's always been kind of my thesis, hey, what about, probably now the direct result is also tons of other banking regulations, right? So AML, KYC is not the only one. Right. So, but all that just centralizes the banking system more. And that leads to just fewer people being banked because often the cost of compliance is just higher than the cost of servicing a person. So, especially if they're poorer, that just makes them much less likely to have access to banking. So, that just impoverishes hundreds of millions of people by, you know, denying them access to formal institutions that would be useful to build their wealth and their life. But what staggers me so much about this system in particular is how globalized it is and how universal. Can you talk a bit about that and why that is? Yeah, uh, basically one of the response nation states can do about all these, uh, you know, disruption uh, brought by internet and the plane and things like this is to, to collaborate, right? And we see more and more of this kind of international regulations. So this is an example. There is also CRS, which is Common Reporting Standards. So basically to try to, to fight against tax evasion, they made a, like a, this cooperation with hundreds of countries to, uh, like the banks will need to report the account of someone living in another country to, to the consular presidents. You see FATCA, which was not really a corporation, but something the U.S. imposed to also hundreds of countries. I mean, hundreds, there are like 190 countries in the world, right? So, uh, but, but a, a lot. And I mean, uh, I didn't study all these international regulations, but the one I did, every time I'm looking at it deeply, I see it's potently inefficient. It is very inefficient. It, it doesn't solve the problem it was supposed to solve, and it, it brings an enormous cost to society. So I, I need to dig more into this. Probably there are a few counterexamples, right? But I think... I mean, they are trying to fight against this situation by collaborating, but it's very hard for many reasons. I mean, we, are, we also have this uh, example right now. This is being like, uh, it's been a few years, this has been in the, in the making right of the two pillars of the OECD. They, they, are, they are trying to impose a minimal global tax on right now, it's big companies, but probably the threshold is going gonna, is gonna to be lower uh, in, in the decades to come. Right? It's very hard for them. Because, I mean, so many things. First, game theory shows that uh, the cartel is basically a cartel, right? Uh, cartel, uh, it's great in the beginning, but usually after a few years slash decades, some players try to cheat to gain short-term advantage and these kind of things. And uh, the thing is, many countries, it's not in their best interest to collaborate. Like Ireland, for example, uh, they are way richer uh, nowadays than uh, 40 years ago because they made sure they are tax even for uh, big multinational companies, right? And I think uh, out of the, the 50 uh, biggest companies, half of them are Americans in, in Ireland, right? They, uh, they hired like uh, 20% of the private workforce of Ireland. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. So they have such a heavy influence, right? So it's not in the best interest of Ireland to collaborate on these kind of things, right? Uh, so, so many conflicting interests and also friction. Um, nation states were built with uh, another principle, which is a monopoly of violence. 
So meaning only the state can use violence legally on its physical territory. And they, they need to do that because you have, you have a hierarchy of laws, meaning you have the laws like voted by, uh, by a state or imposed by a state if it's a dictatorship. And it's good, but it's just something we have in, your ha in our head, right? Nothing really prevents you from not following a law. Everyone in his life at least broke a law once, right? It happens all the time. But there are another kind of laws that nobody ever broke. It's like the physical laws. You, you think gravity doesn't exist and you jump up off a cliff? Problem solved, right? <laughs> you will not reproduce. Uh, Darwin Award for you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Basically, to enforce the, the laws in our mind, we need to use the laws that nobody can break, which are the physical laws. And so basically, when someone puts you in a jail, you cannot escape because of those of physics prevent you from tearing apart a steel, right? Or if someone kills you, you're dead because again, physical laws, right? Uh, but when you set up, we talked about the seed fact theory, it's a good example. When you do that, it creates so much friction because if a country, if a state cannot send the guy armed with a gun to enforce his law, it's way, way much harder for them to, to force people to follow the laws, right? And of course, they can collaborate with uh, other countries or the states to enforce the thing. But though the state, we, their motivation to enforce the law for another state is like zero or very, very low, right? They, they think they have other priorities. Sometimes their own law says what you do is fine, so they don't care, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, it creates this, uh, this big, big friction. And then there are many other parameters, cultural differences, language differences. You know, one of my uncle is, uh, is uh, uh, how do you say in English, like a police chief officer, you know, something like this. And he said uh, once, oh, yeah, I got this fax from uh, the police, the British police, you know, uh, and it was all in English. I sent back the fax. I wrote something in French saying, I don't understand English, you know. <laughs> so, I mean. It's just an anecdote, right? It doesn't prevent anything, but it shows this kind of friction that collaboration between different nation states can bring. So it's not impossible for them to collaborate, but it creates way, way more friction than if someone is just in one country and is basically poor or less against it. Yeah, there's definitely this collusion between governments that you compare to cartels that is leading to that internationalization of AML KYC. I just found it interesting because on this podcast, I featured many different kinds of regulations, right? So we're talking about ESDC's jurisdiction when it comes to securities and crypto and things like that. And they kind of have extraterritorial jurisdiction over American residents. But then something like the FDA, they don't, right? So they are talking to other countries, hey, please do the same thing. And sometimes they do, often they do, but often they don't even have the capacity or the capability. But at the same time, the FDA wouldn't be able really to do much or anything if you just went to like Mexico or to another place for medical tourism, right? So there are these differences in how interoperable these regulations are. But with AMLKYC, it's kind of remarkable how completely international it is, right? So in Prospera, we, on episode one, I talked to Sean Pauly from Seshat Bank. So he can do a different set of regulations here, but he doesn't even, he couldn't do it without AML KYC, right? Because otherwise you could just not be connected to the international financial system, right? To any of the yeah. institutions that it builds. 
So it's just remarkable and frightening and bad um, that it became so internationalized because of the systemic risks that it's introducing, um, which is the, the point that yeah, I care most it's about. A good, it's a good case against, uh, uh, first, a world government. If you want one government for everyone, what, what happens if the government turns bad, right? And even if it's good, who knows what kind of other form of government that could be even better. We need actually different jurisdictions in, in, in like a friendly competition between each other so we can always improve, try new stuff, and this kind of things, right? And uh, the KYCML is a very good example of something that is now worldwide and super inefficient. And yeah. you have these so many people working in these uh, regulations that are making money uh, out of it. And of course, they will never tell you that, right? So, yeah. Uh, this is the simple be... economics of like having monopoly versus competition. Like, even if you're the yeah. best government or best person in the world, if you build an institution that's a monopoly, you don't have an incentive to improve. It would be irrational for you, right? This is why you need the door open to competition, to innovation, to people that are allowed or can freely start a new entity or business to provide the same service for people. Yeah, but at the same time, you know, KYCML uh, were a big, big reason of the invention of Bitcoin on other cryptocurrencies. Uh, permissionless mm -hmm. money was like a very big uh, concept from the start. and. It was obviously one of the reasons was to, to fight against the KYCML. So if you have this kind of monopoly and uh, it's like during the prohibition, right? If something that is important for people becomes illegal, well, guess what? There is a black market that, that will grow to, to overcome the, the, the fact that it's illegal, right? Uh, so we saw this also example uh, many times in history. Now, sometimes the authorities can win on different things, but also it's one of the, of the principles I share is like, if the authorities win at stopping a technology, they will lose over the long term. We saw also like recently, uh, the, the, one of the co-developer of uh, Tornado Cash was arrested because apparently he's accused of not uh, having uh, implemented QYC and AML for Tornado Cash, right? You can see also, these regulations are very inefficient, but they are perfect for people who wants to control society and also to try to prevent the spread of cryptos. Uh, so I think some people are actually very well aware of the inefficiency of the system, but they, it's, it's really good. They, they are super happy to have these kind of tools at their at the disposition. I think for, for the future, for developers who will want to, to build like mixers or anonymizing tools for cryptos, they will have to be sure to not be bottlenecks. Because here we have an example of the Tornado Cash app still works on Ethereum. You can still use it today. It's forbidden if you're American, but it still works. You cannot stop it. And the gov US government is powerless against this because governments are powerless against phenomena that are massive, decentralized, and borderless. They cannot do anything. The example of the Pirate Bay and BitTorrent also showed this. Uh, but they, they attack bottlenecks. And bottlenecks in this case are the developers. Right. So if you are a developer and you want to contribute, you need to be sure to not be a bottleneck. Two things. First, you try to be anonymous as much as possible. And second, I think it's, you shouldn't profit, unfortunately, from the mixer you're going to create. Uh, you have to contribute like, you know, like to Linux, you know, it's free contribution. Unfortunately, I mean, I'm, I'm for capitalism, but in this case, if you don't want to be like a martyr of the cause, probably uh, that's what you need to do. Uh, so yeah, 
these kind of regulations, they are really taking the, the oxygen out of society. And some people try to fight back. And uh, sometimes the, the disruption they are bringing uh, destroy the system over the long term. We'll see how it's going to play over the next decades. Yeah. Yeah. Bitcoin and crypto is such a there is always hope moment <laughs> because it, it's kind of beautiful, like um, very close now within the Ethereum community. And I had interviews on this podcast with Eric Warhees, for example, who's like a true rebel and building decentralized encryption and tools that just allow us to double down on what we've been talking about. It's like living a more independent life, independent from nation states that want to have a claim of authority on us and our lives and basically are in the process, you know, stifling innovation, stifling liberty and all these, these kinds of things. So anything that you have to add to the space of solutions that you can implement in your life to be more independent and to be a netizen without border? Well, the first, I mean, it can be overwhelming for people. This, I don't know what is your audience, but uh, for someone who never traveled too much, it can be overwhelming. I'm not saying like you, you should sell your furniture today on eBay and uh, start to travel the world. You know, you can do it step by step. The first step is to stop being in a, a mono country. So a mono country is someone who was born in a country, uh, educating this country, usually speaks the language of the country mostly. He works in this country, he, he, he was married in this country, he got killed in this country, then he will retire and die in this country, right? When you look at the people around you, probably more than 95% of the population is like this. And I mean, there is nothing really wrong about it, but the problem is you have blind spots, many of them. The biggest one is because you, you really only lived in one country, you cannot compare really different aspect of your country or of your society with others. And it's not because you travel three weeks in Thailand uh, to, for vacation that you will have a better perspective. It, I mean, it helps a little bit, but it's not really what will uh, open your chakras, right? And it's, it's, it's more easy to be manipulated by politicians when you are mono country. So, for example, in France, many French people are persuaded that the French social security is the best in the world. Many, many of them, like 95% plus of the population. When you start to live elsewhere, you can see it's completely wrong. It's not true. The health system in France is good. No doubt about that. But it's very costly. What you pay for social security is like outrageous when you really look at the price. And there are many countries where uh, the quality price ratio is way better. But as a French mother country, you cannot see that. And you just and when I ask some of my friends, okay, uh, you think social security uh, in France is the best? Why? Did you compare or are you repeating what you've been told? They're like, what do you mean? But oh yeah, but no, I never compared. But so how do you know? Ah, yeah, good, good point. <laughs> so see, <laughs> so first step is to, 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 to try as much as possible to not be country. And the best way to do that is to live in other countries. Not, I mean, Try to travel as much as possible is already a good start, but really living in another country is really, really important. And that's when you start to open your perspective on different things, you know. Yeah. I might, I might add to the live in another country, especially to get started easily on the points that we talked about before. Find like an online community with something that you're really passionate about. If you're 
like with the spelunkers or with like the mushroom collectors of another country. <laughs> There's just mu so much that you yeah. have in common with them. And that makes the, makes it just much easier to have or find a community there with people that share the weird and out there passion. And that even allows you to overcome language or culture barriers much quicker because you have that sort of specificity around you and the value that you add in a community like that. I think that's a very good way to get started. No, absolutely. With internet, the, the world is a village and it's so easier to, to, yeah, to, to connect to people who have uh, the same taste and hobbies as you. Yeah. Olivier, this was absolutely amazing. I think a fantastic guide for, for entrepreneurs, for digital nomads, for netizens without borders to just learn from your experience and your examples. A really fascinating ride through history of how we ended up where we are now and how things are changing, informed by lessons from history. And I've been meaning for a while to talk more about AML, KYC, um, just because it's such a fascinating, in the worst kind of sense, <laughs> uh, regulation to learn from, from my audience when it comes to starting the technologies and the themes of this podcast. So where can people find you? What are you want to, there, are there any shout outs you want to give or anything you want to direct their attention to? Yeah, I mean, uh, people interested by this topic can uh, come to my Substack blog, uh, Disruptive Horizons that you mentioned at the beginning. So, Fantastic. And now, thanks so much, Olivier, for coming on this show. Thanks for having me, Nicholas. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. Ch -ch -ch -chumba. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Ch -ch -ch -chumba. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.